Welcome back, friends. Everywhere Radio is thrilled to be back after taking the summer off. It's hard to believe that schools are coming back into session and fall is just around the corner. We're looking forward to bringing you a beautiful set of new interviews with courageous and insightful rural leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and artists. New episodes drop every other Thursday. Make sure you're subscribed to our newsletters so you get a heads up. Our first guest comes to us by way of British Columbia and the Midwest, author Lindsay Borgon. Lindsay Borgon is the author of a new book called Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. The book is about timber poaching, which is a more ubiquitous practice than we might imagine. In North America alone, it's estimated that $1 billion worth of wood is poached yearly, and that includes wood from old growth forests in our national parks. Lindsay's book looks at the complications and complexities of tree poaching. What are the implications of chopping down a centuries-old redwood in the dead of night? The story is part true crime, part history, um, and it's also an examination of how this form of deforestation intersects with some of the most pressing social issues of the 20th and 21st centuries. Tree Thieves is Lindsay's first book, and it's already received glowing reviews from the New York Times, Goodreads and other popular sites and publications. You can also find Lindsay's work in The Atlantic, Smithsonian, The Guardian, The Oxford American, Hazlitt, just to name a few. Lindsay, I'm so pleased that you are here with us on Everywhere Radio. Thank you so much for saying yes. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, it's a real pleasure. And congratulations on the success of your book. It's thank really you. incredible. Yep. I yes, devoured it. Pardon me. Oh, I was just going to say I devoured it um, in just oh. a, a single sitting on uh, this long plane ride that I was on a few weeks ago. And um, oh, I was that's... telling you earlier that, you know, my copy is full of highlights and notes um, yeah. in the margins. I'm so glad to hear that. That's that's how I how I would love for people to interact with my writing. So mm. um, I wonder how how has it been? Um, you know, your first book getting mm -hmm. such wonderful reviews. How, how are you feeling about it? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I've had kind of the pleasure of it, you know, we're at the, what we, what we seem to think is the tail end of COVID and I've been able to, um, to kind of go out and have a few events and it's just been so wonderful. A number of people have come up to tell me personal stories about, you know, how they've experienced timber poaching themselves or how they've experienced some of the kind of social issues that I that I talk about in the book so in that sense um and paired with the reviews it's it's just been a real relief you know I feel like um I just feel like my I found an audience that that really understands kind of the things I was getting at uh when I mm. dove into this story so yeah, mm, that's so really rewarding good. yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. So you've been writing about the intersection of environmentalism and identity and culture for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could tell us, just tell us what tree poaching is um, and also what drew you to that topic. Sure. So tree poaching um, it, it is kind of what it sounds like. So it's often um, one tree taken here or there, usually from um, a conservation area or an area that's being um, kind of preserved in a reserve or, or a national forest. Uh, and that's what makes it poaching, <laughs> you know, is uh, this was a tree that uh, had been set aside for, for protection. 
uh, and logged to, you know, usually in the middle of the night, taken down uh, with a, usually with a chainsaw um, and often sold for firewood or, or taken to a mill kind of under the table. Um, and the reason, the way that I started hearing about this was uh, that an 800-year-old cedar had been stolen from a provincial park in British Columbia, where I live. Um, and so that that tree was an old growth. Uh, it was in a, a kind of an area that had had a lot of controversy around its protection. It was right in the center of this uh, environmental movement of the mid-1990s that we called the War in the Woods. Um, and, you know, I... I I am from a prairie area, and at the time that I heard about this, it was 2012, uh, and uh, I had just never even grown up around big trees, you know? Uh, I, I grew up with just miles and miles and miles of rolling prairie and, and grasslands and, and wheat fields, and you know, and I didn't grow up with old growth, and so to me, this was very shocking uh, that someone would do this and that someone knew how to do it. And that's what really got this the story rolling for me was being very interested in how um, and then very quickly diving into the why and realizing that it was just a huge blow your mind moment. So mm -hmm. um and you now you live, so you grew up in the prairie, now you live, as you said, um uh with plenty of trees around you. Mm -hmm. And I wonder when you look out your front door in your community and or your window, what, what is it that you see um, mm -hmm. in, in your community? So the community where I live uh, is actually a former logging community. Uh, so there were once, it was kind of once in the middle of two mills and then there were actually three or four kind of within driving distance even from there. And so this was, this was logging land, you know, for, for decades um, and, when you look outside my window now, there is a community forest across the street from me, and it, it doesn't have old growth in the sense that you might think of thousand-year-old trees, but it has, uh, you know, really very beautiful forest land of Douglas fir and mixed stand with spruce. Um, so it, it's it's a forested area for sure, and it's uh, it's a place where people have, until very, very recently, really made their lives around logging and made their lives around the mill. Mm. So, mm -hmm. And so much of your book is kind of exploring that question about who would steal, who, who steals a tree and, and why, um, mm -hmm. and, and their relationship to the land, to their identity and the community. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what makes the book really unique. Um, it's this isn't just a true crime story or a, um, a trying to uncover a who did it. Um, yeah. But as you said, exploring the why. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to those complexities. So, um, yeah, which I know is big. That's big. It's a whole book. When I was doing interviews with NROs and park rangers and what have you, you know, and asking them, why does this why is this happening here? They would say, well, all of these towns around this forest are struggling with poverty, they're struggling with methamphetamine use, and this is a resource that is available, and often the folks that do it, they know how to use a chainsaw, and they know where to take it because they understand the market. Um, 
And once I started doing interviews with poachers, I mean, this, they told me in their own words, a very similar story, right? Which is like, I know how to use a chainsaw because my dad, my dad's dad taught me, or, you know, in some cases they would say, I don't even know how I learned how it was osmosis. I just know, you know, and I feel comfortable with wood and I know how to sell it. Um, and I need money. You know, this was the, this was the current running through all of the interviews. I, I have to live. I have to live. You know, I was interviewing men who lived out of their trucks most of the time, um, or poachers that just could not find work anywhere else. And I think sometimes there, I mean, you know, this because of this, the topics that you cover and, and the people you talk to, there's this often a gut reaction of like, why don't you move somewhere else? Why don't you, mm-hmm. why don't you move, go get a new job. And a, apart from the practicalities of, you know, one poacher saying to me, how am I supposed to get a deposit and two months rent and gas for my car to go move somewhere else and furniture and, and, and I also love where I live. It's where my mom lives. It's where I grew up, all of this. So there's just all of these kind of knitted together compounding reasons why someone might turn toward poaching. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes as well, and this is kind of, not everyone said this, but quite a few people did. um, There's a certain amount of ownership over the land and and over the forest itself uh, that I was hearing about where a poacher might express to me, you know, my grandfather was logging these forests before the park came in and I'm going to log them now. Mm. Oh man. And that just begs the question of, you know, who, who owns the land and who was here Mm. first and all of those things. I wonder um, Mm -hmm. if you can speak to the indigenous aspect of, um, of, of land. Absolutely. Well, I mean, so there is absolutely, particularly in North America um, and in Canada, uh, stories about poaching, indigenous poaching from national park lands uh, that I think are really compelling. Um, and they, you know, they're telling stories of one day, this was my traditional territory that I gathered and, and hunted deer on. And the next day I was told it was illegal and I continued trapping and I continued hunting. And this, this is a, a really important sort of assertion of rights uh, and assertion of traditional practice uh, for indigenous peoples. And this is not on the same level as uh, a, a settler family, you know, really no matter how long they've stayed in a town, <laughs> feeling ownership over that town. Um, but actually this was something that poachers actually even expressed to me, which I thought you know, it was really enlightening to me. I I think the last quote in the book is from a poacher saying, you know, in the end, this isn't, this is Yurok land. This is, which is the nearest tribe, right? So um, there's an understanding that whether, whether land is being managed as a national park or, or as a forest service or private lands in general, it's still coming from stolen land. Um, and there's a, a, a sort of understanding of the layers of power there between the two, I think, um, between indigenous community and working class community and how power has displaced both. I wonder what, what were those conversations like for you? Uh, you described your shock at 
I mean, early on in this conversation, you describe your shock at uh, at the idea that somebody could cut down an 800 year old uh-huh. tree. And I imagine that could turn into also frustration or anger about that sort of thing. But then you, then you have a conversation with a poacher and what do mm. you learn? You know, by when I was approaching poachers who were just very open with me um, and really wanted to talk, you know, I knew that it, I knew that I wanted to approach them from a level of tell me about your, your family story. That was really important to me. Um, and tell me about your community story. And then we can talk about the poaching itself. What sort of stories um, emerged or what sort of themes came out of that approach? Yeah. Well, I really focused on um, one town in Northern California, um, partly because I actually, you know, I did research in other towns as well. And they, every town is different, but actually a lot of the narratives are are really the same. Um, a lot of the, they're, they're repeated themes, you know, that go through a lot of the histories of of logging towns and other resource towns even. Um, and so when I when I was in Oric, which is in Northern California, right on the border of Redwoods National Park, I knew that I had a deep history as a dairy town and I knew it had a, had a deep history as a mill town and a logging town. And so I, uh, I knew that I just wanted to talk to the people that had lived there longest, first of all. Um, and, I knew that I was going to speak to some to some poachers, you know, who had who had um, poached from the national park, who had poached redwood from the national park. Um, but really, I was hearing stories about how their grandfathers had moved to Northern California because they were timbermen. Um, you know, in particular, there there's a family that I interviewed who you know, family of 10 kids and their dad was a logger and then all the boys became loggers and they grew up in North Carolina and they just kind of moved west as the timber provided until you kind of get to humble, you can't go <laughs> any further. Um, and, you know, made roots, made roots in that town. And and because the town's roots were in logging and their family's roots were in logging, it just became this intractable part of, of who, who they were and, and, you know, who their son, Chris, would end up becoming um, and how he identified within his family and within the community itself. Um, So this is a story that could be told up and down the coast. Um, You know, this is, I was reading case files of of poachers who their, again, their dads were loggers, their uncles were loggers, their town was similarly Kind of all the boys thought they would enter logging, you know, highly gendered in that way. And um, this was the culture that had kind of led to them feeling rooted in a place. Um, and then when the late 1980s and early 1990s came and there was there was this kind of social phenomena in the Pacific Northwest called the Timber Wars. And when that kind of kicked up dust and, and kind of stoked lots of trouble, uh, it left a lot of folks feeling really isolated, not only from where they grew up, but, you know, from from work and their families and where they fit in. And, mm-hmm. and this was really what I was hearing from, in my interviews. Yeah, that, um, that you mentioned, you know, this this could be this, this a similar profile to other extractive mm-hmm. um, resource based economies in 
across the country. I mean, even coal mining, you think about uh, coal miners who are, have generations of, mm-hmm. um, of hands in the mountains and Absolutely. a feeling, a connection and that identity yeah. um, to that, to that work. So then to tell them that that doesn't belong to them, or that's not, that's not theirs anymore, or somehow disconnecting them from that identity. Yeah. Um, and I can... think that, um, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that there have been, um, one thing I tried to dig into in the book is, you know, I, I, I don't want to argue that logging should have continued in the Pacific Northwest. You know, we don't have much old growth left at all. Uh, you know, I think something like 95% of the redwoods that were once on the continent are gone now. You know, that is a remarkable amount of logging and caused irreparable damage. But the way that we, the way that going about that logging, stopping that logging happened, it caused its own deep levels of harm that we're still dealing with now. And and poaching is the direct descendant of some of the language around that activism and how it did or did not include certain communities and, and, and certain people. Um, so that was, that was a big part of what I wanted to kind of communicate through the book, um, is that not so much that the, that the poachers even felt that logging should have continued because there's a lot of like very varied opinions within the book itself around logging and, and, and the environment, you know, but, uh, but the way that the, the way that mines were kind of changed or not changed came about Mm. Uh, was really enlightening to me uh, and a little bit overwhelming but (laughs) I think important to to look at now we'll be right back after this from the daily yonder hi I'm Xander Brown with the daily yonder check out the yonder report a weekly podcast rounding up the latest rural news Produced by the Daily Yonder and Public News Service, you can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Everywhere Radio. Can you give us a, sh- a snapshot of what a poaching might entail or what it might look like? I mean, there are several examples of it in the book. Sure. Happening in the dead of night. Um, but how yeah. would we recognize what it what it is or looks like? Most poaching takes place only, you know, maybe 10 steps from the side of a road or the side of a trail. And that's because wood is super heavy and you need to transport it. And so if you can back your truck in somewhere or your car, or you can even park an ATV somewhere and kind of load it up and slowly take it out, um, that that's important. And all of the poaching sites that I've seen have been they did not take me much time to get there at all. Really, really close. Um, Unless it is a particularly small and valuable type of wood, it will be done with a chainsaw. The case of the 800-year-old cedar in BC actually was very, very close to a parking lot. So it was strategically chosen for that reason, because when the tree was felled, it could be easily tipped into a quite a large truck in the parking lot and transport it out. Um, often there are chains and uh, you know oil drips left behind uh, if someone's filled up a, a chainsaw again or, or what have you. Um, and then depending on the type of wood, that impacts where it's going to go into like get into the to the market and into the system. So 
there's a really big market for firewood in the Pacific Northwest. Um, a lot of this wood goes to firewood. A lot of it is sold on Marketplace, on Facebook or Craigslist, uh, or on the side of the road, or you know, with, with signs from a property. But it could be old growth Douglas fir, you know. Um, redwood burl, which is, I talk a lot about redwood burl in the book, and that's uh, because it's really valuable wood. Um, and it's it's very beautiful. So burls are these huge growths that come off the side of a tree. They're often code like the outside will be all bark. Uh, but when you cut into it, the wood is just un, unbroken. You know, there's no, there are no knots, there are no imperfections at all. And it, you know, it's very pliable. So it's usually sold to a burl shop or to directly to an artisan. Uh, where it can be turned into bowls or tables or, um, you know, there used to be quite a market for burl veneer inside luxury cars and, and burls would be sold by the weight into that market, often to exporters who would ship them to, to Europe where they would be manufactured into the car. Um, so that's one way. Uh, there is figured maple in Washington. It, there's a really high demand for that for musical instruments. And so it is often logged and, and milled into planks, um, usually sold into the mill system. Uh, there's a number of ways that can happen. Sometimes mill owners might turn a blind eye if they know that the wood is really valuable and they can move it quick. Uh, in other cases, there are examples of poachers forging the paperwork to show that it came actually from a legal location and then upon visit later perhaps turns out didn't come from there at all so there's there's a number of ways that it enters into the system um what i find interesting about it is you know even douglas fir i i say douglas fir goes to to firewood but it's there's a huge market like it's very trendy right now to have live edge tables or to this kind of more rustic look in our homes and stuff it's beautiful and I don't fault anyone for loving that but you know there's only if you want a real long table the tree's gonna and quite wide the tree has to be a certain age right so there there are there's consumer demand for this type of wood because it's so beautiful um so mm. that's how it ends up with us mm -hmm. and I want to get back to how to the roots of this being kind of like folk crime, which mm -hmm. is what you, how you describe it in the book. But first I just wanna ask, I mean, how do, you, how do you compare just poaching a couple of trees to the industrial logging complex that, mm -hmm. um, that we know exists in our country as well? I mean, the ecological impact of either one of those, how, where do they fall on the spectrum? Large scale deforestation and also, um, forest management that treats forests like a crop, essentially. Um, it has a huge environmental impact. Um, and that is, you know, it cannot, it, it shouldn't be compared to what it means for someone to take down an old growth tree. But there is an impact of taking down that old growth. And it, you know, it's in, uh, environmental and it's social as well. So you know, old growth, the, the old growth that we have left, it is an incomparable um, habitat for endangered species. 
um, in Washington and Oregon, the northern spotted owl only lives in old growth, only lives in certain stands of old growth. Like they are very picky animals. <laughs> um, and so to preserve the ripple effects of, of, of these other species, we need to keep those trees around, even if there's only one or two. So the number, you know, the quality far outweighs the quantity in that regard. Um, they are, you know, they, they, they stabilize the forest floor. Um, they provide habitat for fungi and, and all of these kind of important lichens and, and stuff like that to grow on. And they are carbon sinks. So as we continue to just blow past any targets we have for uh, decarbonization or, you know, all of that, the old growth actually absorbs way more carbon than second growth forests can. And they're invaluable in that regard. So we need to keep as much of them as possible. Um, and they also provide, uh, and this is difficult to quantify, but they provide us with recreation space because they are most often in protected and managed areas like parks, national forests, what have you. Um, and they contribute to culture in that way, and they contribute to indigenous cultures and, and, and kind of all of these social elements um, that, that, that need preservation. I suppose. Mm -hmm. I, I'm absolutely with you, and I don't mean to put you on the no. about uh -uh. about uh, the trees either. Um, and actually, no, I no, it's maybe... just. Um, sorry, I would just. It it is a really interesting question, and I think um, the way that I've the the way that I've kind of seen this in my head is that as we continue to log and and have these kind of clear cut clear cut scale logging like legal logging um, yeah, process, projects, yeah. processes happen. What the way that I've seen that tied to the poaching is actually that in order to stop that effectively, we need to see how in the past when we didn't do it so well, it led to the poaching of the, these old growth now. Because at one point, <clears throat> at one point, the, the kind of, clear-cut logging of all of this old growth in the Pacific Northwest. It was a massive problem and it needed to be stopped, but because it was it was stopped in a way that wasn't inclusive and in a way that didn't take into effect the loggers, um, it, you know, we're still, it's still happening just on a different scale. Well, I could talk to you about this for a long time, but I'm going to encourage everyone to go out and, you know, get their own copy of Tree Thieves, um, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. Um, and before I let you go, I wanted to ask you, because I ask all my guests, what are you reading right now or watching or listening to that inspiring you or challenging you or that you want to share? Okay. So I'm really hoping that PBS brings this over, but I, so I was recently in the UK and there's a new show on the BBC there called Sherwood. And I've just been obsessed with this show, partly because I think it did successfully what we're talking about here. So this was uh, essentially a murder mystery show, but really it was about the miners strike in the 1980s. And it really got, it was a community profile of how when a crime happens or when tragedy happens, how all of the 
how history is not very far beneath the surface. And it just, it was also incredibly tender. So if you can seek that out and find a way to watch it, like, please do. It is just so, so good. Um, and I'm reading a book that is going to come out. I've been very lucky to receive an advanced copy of it um, called At Home on an Unruly Planet by Madeline Ostrander, I think is how you pronounce her name. Um, and it is about climate change and finding a home on a changing earth um, and really balancing where humans can find their feet within this, uh, within all the change around us and uh, how separation of, of people from conservation and environmental management just is untenable. Mm. So really great memoir. So. Thank you for those recommendations. Um, we always uh, add those to the Rural Assembly website. So folks who can, who receive our emails um, and newsletters can have access to those. So sure would. And then say the mm -hmm. book name one more time. At Home it. on an Unruly Planet. Perfect. Thank you so much, Lindsay. I've enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed Everywhere Radio, we'd love for you to consider subscribing to the General Rural Assembly newsletter. That's where we promote new offerings from the Assembly, and we amplify the good work of our many partners across the country. We've also launched a new policy advocacy newsletter that comes to inboxes on Mondays to help you start each week with a quick take on the top issues that we're tracking across the nation. Everything from broadband policy to rural vaccinations. Just head over to ruralassembly.org to sign up. If you're a true fan of Everywhere Radio, please let us know by rating us wherever you get your podcast. If this isn't your cup of tea, that's no biggie. It's fine. And we'd like to thank our media partner, The Daily Yonder. Everywhere Radio is a production of the Rural Assembly. Our senior producer is Joel Cohen, and our associate producers are Xander Brown and Teresa Collins. And we're grateful for the love and support of the whole team at the Center for Rural Strategies. Love you. Mean it. You can be anywhere. We'll be everywhere. <laughs>